Today, is rent vesting the way to go? Hello again, it's Martin North from Digital Finance Analytics. Welcome to this post covering finance and property news with a distinctively Australian flavour. Today, I'm joined by George McCoskey. Hi, George. Hi, Martin. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Great to have you on the show, and uh, thanks for spending some time with us. Now, you've got um, a very interesting perspective, particularly on property investing, and uh, you know, in the context of everything that's happening with um, bouncing house prices, moving very high, lending going up, etc., etc. It's a very confusing market. So I guess the question that I've got for you is, where are the suburbs from an investing perspective that look more attractive and how do you access them? Okay, great, great question. And um, basically um, when it comes to where the suburbs, there's, I'll, I'll talk about the macro ideas of suburbs because it all comes down to demand and supply and where there's um, a lack of supply then there's going to be more growth. And when there's um, available, more available supply, there's going to be less growth. And I'll give you an example because um, two of the examples I've got are actually sound like they're the opposite, but they're actually the same thing. So for example, the two areas that I really avoid, and there's the um, and I normally do the, the no-go zone. I've got a hundred suburbs that I give away um, at positivepropertysolution.com.au. But anyway, um, basically the two areas that I avoid is one is capital cities right in the center units um, so on my no-go zone list is all the cbds all the apartments in those areas uh melbourne cbd sydney cbd brisbane cbd because there's been an oversupply and that's the reason i don't like apartments is because you can easily knock down a couple of houses and build another block with 100 100 apartments and suddenly you've got an oversupply very easily and, and george just on that you might be interested to know that uh, those two particular areas I also agree with you insofar that that's where the highest levels of investor stress are. So those people who bought in previously, right, mm -hmm. are not getting the returns they expected. They're not getting the occupancy they expected, partly because of the lockdowns, but partly because of the oversupply. So absolutely endorse that. That is not a good place to be looking. And people are frankly losing their shirts. There are actually, I've got a, I've got a few members on our program that actually, because before they joined our program, they bought um, properties in Sydney uh, apartments. They actually had to move into their apartment because they couldn't afford to rent it out because the vacancy rates are so high now. Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. And it's not going to get better anytime soon because, of course, students haven't come back. The international borders uh, will be shut for some time. But more importantly, they're still building more and more in those areas. And that's why your insight about you've got to understand what the forthcoming supply is going to be because if you're going to be building a lot more guess what happens prices go down exactly and a lot of people don't realize that and what happens is where there's big developments there's a lot of marketing so people get excited about these areas where there's all these developers building but it's a sort of um a lot of people look at population growth as a as a growth factor but unfortunately it's not because a lot of times population growth actually follows lots of building and it's a lag factor. <laughs> That's very interesting because that basically turns the story on its head, doesn't it? Because a lot of people would say, we need to build more stuff because population growth is happening, but actually maybe that's the wrong one way to look at it. So, so, okay, so those suburbs are no-goes, yep. right? Yep. And, and presumably then we sort of expand out and say, well, what about 
go the other end. What about the outskirts, those, those new homeland package areas, you know, all those high growth corridors? Are they worth looking at? Great question. And the other extreme I was going to go to before I go to this mid-range one is mining towns and boom towns. Mm. And they're the areas, the other area where there's always an oversupply because there's so much land around the place. And that's the other areas that I um, stay away from. Yep. So usually you can look at um, the return on a property. And if it's a very high rental return, let's say you're getting 7, 8, 9, 10, 11%, that's a clear indication that it's in an area where it's going to be, there's going to be an oversupply. Mm. So getting, getting too much rental return is actually a bad sign. A lot of people chase that, but <laughs> I try to avoid that because I like to stick between five and a half and six and a half percent. Right. Now, just to be clear, are you talking there gross rental or net rental? Because right? gross right. rental is effectively right. the price versus the theoretical rental that you can get if it's let out 100%, right? That's the gross rental. Net rental is after all the other costs, the mortgage, the strata fees, the maintenance and everything else, right? Yep. I guess you're talking gross rental. I'm talking gross rental, exactly. Yep. Gross rental is too high. There's a, there's, that means that the area you're in is probably not going to grow, and that's why you're getting such a high gross rental. Yeah. Okay. And just one question. Do you think gross rental is actually a good measure? Um, because obviously, if you don't have the properties occupied, then it goes down. Um, do you look at net rental returns as well? Okay, look, um, basically, obviously, at the end of the day, you look at net rentals, which are uh, a function of the gross rental when you look at it and the way you structure the deal. So I, I know that when I look at the deal, I'm looking at five and a half to six and a half percent. Because with less than five and a half percent, it's going to be hard to hold the property. More than six and a half percent, you're getting too much rent and you're not going to get capital growth. So I find there's a bit of a Goldilocks area where uh, five and a half to six and a half is a very good place where property can grow. Very interesting. And of course, um, I model gross and net returns at a postcode level across the whole country. And uh, I see this massive change from top to bottom, right? There are areas where they're actually underwater, there are areas where they're very high, but that sweet spot that you're talking about is, is quite interesting. So the question is, if it's not, you know, in the centre of town and if it's not out in the urban suburbs, where is it? Where are those sweet spots? Okay, so the sweet spots I look at are basically in large, in, in, capital, in capital cities or large regional centres. That's the areas that I look at for investing. And, um, the metrics that I look at are probably the opposite of what most people look for. That's the interesting thing. So, for example, there's a lot of people out there talking about, you know, getting a bargain and getting a discount and buying a property under market value. And I don't really believe that that's actually possible or true. <laughs> right. So you have to pay what the market says is the market. Yeah, because the, the, the point is, if it's below the market, there's a reason why it's below the market, right? Well, whatever you pay is actually the market because that's what that really means. So what, yep. what you pay for a property is the actual price the property is worth. Hmm. And, um, and a lot of people fooled themselves into thinking, well, okay, they were asking 550, but I got it for 500, so I got it 500 less. No, you got it, five, you got it 50, 50,000 less than the asking price. It's not 50,000 less than the actual market price. Because you paid the market price. Right. So you'd set the market price when you actually complete it. And of course, this is this big issue, right? A lot of the information on all the portals is last asking price or, you know, expected asking price. That doesn't tell you anything at all about the true market value, does it? No, no, it doesn't. But um, one thing that I, I really look at is average vendor discount. Mm -hmm. And normally that 
once, once you aggregate that, if you've got enough properties in the area, because obviously if it's only one or two properties, you can't really tell. But if there's like 20 sales per month in an area, you can look at the average vendor discount and that will give you an indication of how much discount when vendors are willing to give. If I'm looking at an area that's average vendor discount is high, that's yeah. the area I want to stay away from, the 10-foot pole, yeah. because there's a reason. And I want to go to an area where the vendor discount's negative. They're actually getting more than what they're asking for because there's a lot of um, people wanting to buy because that's the area you want to buy in because the people that live there that are selling the property, they know that area better than you. They've lived there. They know the area. And if they're giving a discount, they know something you don't know. Right. And that's absolutely interesting because most people would assume, well, I can go and pick up a bargain if the vendor discounts are significantly higher. But what you're saying is that may not be the right way to think about it. That's a really important insight. Yeah, well, I guess um, there's two types of market, the seller's market, the buyer's market. And a lot of people want to buy in a buyer's market because there's lots of stock on the air, a lot, lots of stock available. And because of that, you can negotiate and get good terms and buy it. But then there's the opposite of buying in a, in a seller's market where it's very tight and it's hard to buy. But buying in a seller's market is the way to go, even though it's difficult. <laughs> and when you think about um, you know, property and property investing, right? to what extent do you reflect on the potential for future capital growth versus the ongoing rental uh, flows? You know, how, how's the relativity of those two things? Yeah, good question, Martin. Um, basically, I really believe property investing is all about capital growth because that's where the real money is. Because let's say I buy a property, properties average around 7% per year in Australia over the long term. So that means um, if you get a property, you hold it for 10 years, it should double in around 10 years. Sometimes quicker, sometimes a little bit slower. <laughs> and it's interesting because, of course, you've got, um, I find in my surveys, right, uh, quite a few people believe that property religiously doubles every seven years or so. Now, I have to tell you, and you probably know this, of course, you've got to look carefully, right? There are areas where that is true, but there's also a lot of areas where it's not true, right? Take some areas of Perth, for example, where the high prices were back in 2011-12, and they're still lower today. So, again, you have to go careful. You can't just take this high-level headline. You've got to look at the detail, haven't you? Absolutely. And that's because properties don't do it every year. They sort of two thirds of the time they do nothing. And then for one third, they're either going up or going down. That's why, because of that. But I think with property investing, what a lot of people don't realize is the longer term you look at, the safer you are. Because if you look at um, over 20 years, the average growth really pans out and evens out. But over two or three years, you may get a big rise or a big fall. And that's the challenge. And when you're looking long term, you're a lot safer and short term, you shouldn't be investing in short term. That's what I say. Right. So that's very interesting, again, because a lot of people would say, oh, quick buck, you know, uh, I can buy this, I can hold it for a bit and then turn it. What you're saying is if you're going to go into property investing, there's got to be a strategy for the long term. And through that, you'll be riding growth of value and maybe some just settling as well. So you need to have a what, what, what typical period do you think people should be thinking over? Look, I, I think 10 years as a minimum is the way to go because obviously, um, if you look at the last four decades, properties have doubled around every 10 years. Um, they had a little bit of a slower doubling after 2008. They didn't quite double that 10-year period, 2008 to 18. They almost did, but every other decade they doubled. So <laughs> Not true for units, I have to tell you. <laughs> Um, no, no, not exactly. So on average, and I agree, and that's why I stay away from units, and that's why I stay away from boom towns because they're just not 
the, the problem with those is um, there's too much around. Uh, you can't get the limited supply, which is important. So I totally agree with you about the units. And I think we're in for worse because I just saw an article this morning. I mean, they're building two big towers here in Adelaide, but we all, all, we've already got almost a 10% vacancy rate in the city and they're building more. So I don't get it. <laughs> yep. Well, I think you both, uh, we both agree units is not the way to go. Now, so, so okay, so we're looking for particular types of property in particular locations with certain characteristics, right? The other question then that people quite, quite often ask me is, so, you know, should I cross leverage? So I get my first property, I use the equity from that, then to buy the second, to buy the third, to buy the fourth, right? Now, what's your perspective there in terms of, um, you know, building a leverage portfolio? Does that make sense or not? Look, personally, I think leverage is important, but you've got to really be careful with that. So I, I like to have a 20% equity, 80% borrowing on average around my properties because I find um, that 20% keeps you safe, but at least you're getting a multiple. So, for example, if I pay $500,000 cash for a $500,000 property and that goes up 7%, that means that I've made you know 7%, which is 35 grand. However, if I put in a hundred thousand deposit and I've got a four hundred thousand loan, then I've actually made five times that. So instead of seven percent, I've made um, five times seven, which is thirty-five um, percent, which is much better. And I, so <laughs> you can get you know between thirty to eighty percent return when you're leveraging. If right. you look at that way. But so just be I'm, careful, of course, that's a gross return. There's always a um, capital gains issue to come into focus when you actually sell, if you sell, if you're an investing. So just to be cautious about, you know, what, what precisely returns you're looking at. But, uh, but clearly, if you've got a leveraged situation and property prices go up, then you do well. Conversely, of course, if property prices slide and you've got the loans, it's not so pretty. I, I totally agree, and that's why you've got to be careful. So what I, what I, what I think is, I think a 20, 20 to 80 is the right way to go. I do like to leverage um, my equity because the equity is sitting there doing nothing anyway, so you might as well use it. So I, I'm, I aggressively use my equity to buy investment properties from my principal place of residence. But also, I'm very careful when it comes to property and the cash flow because the cash flow is the key. So if, you've got a, if you're buying a property and you can't afford that cash flow, you should not be buying it. You know, I'm really... There's a lot of people with FOMO at the moment because they're seeing properties go up and they're trying to jump in the market really quickly and they're going a little bit too quick. Because I do believe you need to be, you need to have property to make money out of property. However, you need to get it right. You need to really educate yourself and cross your T's, dot your I's and really be certain before you jump in because if you get it right, you will do so well. If you get it wrong, you can really stuff it up. And if you stuff up the first one, then you're stuffed. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, doing the work is, is a very un-Australian thing, isn't it, for many people? They sort of just, you know, have a look at the high-level information and jump in. But you've got to actually go into this quite analytically. You've got to recognise that not all postcodes are the same, not all types of property are the same. Even within a postcode, you might find two properties that could behave differently because of where they are or characteristics of the property or, you know, the strata fee structures or some other element if you're looking for, you know, low-rise, um, um, you know, uh, apartments as well. Um, so it's really important to do the work. And, and I think you, you've made a very another important point, which is it takes a bit of time to get this sorted out. So what you don't want to do is sort of start cross-leveraging immediately and just build and build and build, you know. So you build this huge, a rather wobbly ed edifice that is debt-supported 
without clearly understanding the nature of the cash flows that you're dealing with. And again, I quite often find when I talk to people is they've never really sat down and thought about the cash flows and thought about what happens if. So that's the other factor that I always think is important when you actually look at this. Um, absolutely. And um, I created this thing called a cash flow calculator that I use every time I look at a deal where I can put everything in and look at actually how much cash is going out of my pocket. So when I first started investing, I had no idea. I just jumped in gun ho and I was negative gearing. And, you know, I bought one property as minus 300, the next property minus 400. And before you knew it, I was like working seven days a week trying to pay for my property. So I, I've experienced the pain of having a negative gear property. I had quite a few of them. And um, it wasn't until I learned how to restructure and change that because I think, you know, a lot of people look at either positive gearing or negative gearing. And I think they're probably both not that good. And what I've done is I've got a hybrid. It's called negative gearing, positive cash flow. <laughs> Sounds a wonderful miracle if, if, if you can pull it off. But again, it's about finding the right properties, right? And, and then thinking about it the right way. And that's really you know, the point, I guess. Um, and, and coming back to um, the geographic conversation, I mean, I can look at the returns in Sydney and Melbourne, I compare them with, say, Brisbane or Adelaide or Hobart, right? And it looks to me as though if I were able to pick places across the country, I probably would be less inclined to go Sydney and Melbourne and more inclined to go in some of the smaller centres. Is, is that what you see too, or do you have a different perspective? No, I agree with you. Um, I, I feel like um, Melbourne and Sydney have had the huge jump, and even before COVID, I was looking at moving into Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth. If you look at the median house price of Perth at the moment, it's the lowest out of every um, city in Australia, including Tasmania and Darwin, you know, <laughs> which, which is amazing. Now, what, what I like to look at is, I look at um, property a bit like fruit, right? <laughs> I know this sounds funny, but you know, let's say you're buying um, you know, apples and bananas. Well, at the end of the day, if apples are suddenly $10, $10 a kilo and bananas are $1 a kilo, well, suddenly bananas, people are going to be buying more bananas. And, and all the capital cities, they always pan out to similar discrepancies in price in their median house price. And I feel like um, Sydney and Melbourne are way above everyone else compared to normal. And if you look at uh, back in, I think it was about 2011 or something, Perth and Sydney, their prices what weren't that different when the median their average price. And look well, at Perth now, was higher at one stage. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So when you look at that, you can see there's um, potential to bounce back. So so I always look at market cycle timing. Now, um, what that means for a lot of people that are listening, they may not understand what it means. Is um, what I look at is because um, a lot of lot of property. Um, magazines, they go, wow, look at Gladstone. They grew, you know, it's gone up five years in a row, 20%, fantastic, go invest there. And I'm saying, no, I don't want to touch that. I'm always doing the opposite, the contrary, because I'm looking at an area that hasn't gone up for 10 years in a row, five years in a row, because that has to come back. Because if you get a graph and plot a suburb and it averages 7% and it's below that graph, it's going to go back up to that graph. If it goes above it, it's going to go back down. And I've, I've experienced this in my own property portfolio. I mean, I bought a property in Perth, uh, for 220 just before the mining boom, and it went up to 500,000 in two years, which is very exciting. And then it just plateaued. So, but if you look at the average over 10 years, it did 
that's the funny thing. So, so when a property, when I buy a property and it does less than what I expected or more than I expected, it doesn't get me excited or upset because I know long term, if you get the right fundamentals, it will catch up or go back down again. Yeah, and that's the point, isn't it? This long term perspective is is the critical thing. Now we touched on rent investing in the title, but let's just now spell out precisely what is rent investing then. Okay, so. Your owner occupier, even though you know your owner occupier is not an investment, I'm sorry to say, because a lot of people think you know buying a house to live in is an investment, forget renting. The fact that it's shock is- horror, you, you just destroyed the vision of many people who's sitting on their property thinking it's the biggest asset I got, but they're not necessarily looking at it right, are they? That's the point. No, no, because the, the challenge is, is your owner occupier. When you buy an own occupier, you're, you're getting your, they take out your super, they take out your tax, and what little you got left after all your bills, you pay it towards the mortgage. And most people are principal and interest, so it's really tough. The hardest thing, the biggest thing you're going to pay off and the hardest thing you can do in your life is your own home mortgage. But it's not an asset that doesn't make you money. All it does is grow, grow in growth. So what I suggest is, you know, rent vesting is the way to go. What I mean by that, and a lot of people are doing it now, is you rent where you want to live, but invest where you want to invest because there's 16,000 suburbs in Australia. And out of those 16,000 suburbs, there's obviously going to be a certain group of suburbs that are better than the rest. And there's going to be ones that are worse. And the chance of you wanting to live in a, in a area that's actually going to grow, grow in value as well is not that high. And you want to live in a certain area for different reasons because you want to, um, you know, be close to schools or work or whatever. So what I what I call that is when people um, have you heard of a spork? You know what a spork is? A spork? No, do explain. Okay, so I don't know if you've ever gone to those cheap Asian places where you get um, takeaway and they give you this. Oh, it's half yeah. a fork and half a spoon, yes. and it it's a really terrible spoon, a terrible fork. It doesn't work either way, and sort of you get, you're compromising. And when when you're investing, when you're buying a property, I suggest don't buy a spork. You know, if you want to buy a property to invest in, buy something that's going to grow up, grow, grow, grow in value. If you're going to buy a family home, buy something that's going to be a good family home. Because you, if you compromise, it's going to be a poor family home, poor investment. It's not going to do anything. I'd rather get exactly what I'm looking for. So I believe that it's a lot cheaper to rent. And when I retired, I retired in my 30s through property. And I was getting about $180,000 a year from my property portfolio. And I wanted to live on the beach for the lifestyle. But unfortunately, properties were about 1.7 million on the beachfront here in Adelaide at the time. Pretty cheap, amazing. But anyway, but at the time it would have cost about 150,000, and I'd only have 30,000 left over for lifestyle. But I rented for a thousand dollars a week, and I had 130,000 left over, and I had my landlord subsidise my lifestyle on the beach, which was awesome. Thank you to him. Absolutely. And that is the point, isn't it? So there are two sets of decisions. The first decision is where do you want to live, right, from a lifestyle perspective and, you know, close to the, the things that are important for you. And the second is where are you going to make your financial investment decisions, right? Those yes. two things are not necessarily the same and and therefore if you're not careful you end up in this sort of hybrid situation where you're hoping your investment property which is also where you live is going to go up but you know it's not going to behave the way you, you want but again it's about methodical thinking isn't it at the end of the day that's what you're talking about here it is absolutely totally it's all about thinking clearly and knowing what your goals are but i really think you know you, sh you should really um really start getting your investment properties because 
an investment property, you've got the investment property, your tax, your tenant all working for you and helping you do this. But when you buy an owner occupier, you're doing it all yourself. So I don't <laughs> want to do it myself. I want to get leverage. You know, I want to be yeah. like, you know, Henry Ford. Yeah. And of course, the government uh, is very keen for people to own property investments, there are tax breaks and all, and all those things. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I talk a lot of the, uh, the time about the problem with the property market in Australia, but the investment sector is huge in terms of the, um, you know, the influence it has on, on the total market. So, so, George, if people want to find out more about those suburbs and, you know, more about this way of thinking, um, where do they go? OK, they can go to positivepropertysolution.com.au. Great. Well, I appreciate your time today. Very interesting talking with you and uh, congratulations on your portfolio. I think of 39 properties, according to the uh, blurb somebody sent me. <laughs> so that's uh, pretty impressive. And um, uh, I shall uh, watch with interest as the uh, property market uh, continues to evolve and develop. Um, we'll be interesting to see what happens with regard to the growth rates and everything else. But folks, the point is, you've got to do the work. You've got to be clear about what it is you're trying to invest if you're going to invest in property and you need to have that long-term view. And George, I think that's a really important message. So thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great. See you later. Cheers. Cheers.